should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull****. It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Hello and welcome to Hump Day. It's Wednesday, Hump Day, November 18th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and in studio with us is Fong, our producer. Fong, are you awake? She's not awake. I'm not entirely awake. <laughs> Did you go to bed late? No, it's just... Did I? Maybe. I feel like you did. I, I, you gotta snap out of it. It's hump day! You know what happens on hump day? I shouldn't be clapping my hands. What happens? Well, I mean, people are excited for Wednesday because once you get over the hump, then you're into the weekend. Tomorrow will be a little Friday, as I always say. And also, you know, on Wednesdays, people uh, can think about their, you know, crushes. Women crush Wednesdays. Oh, right? oh, okay. Right? Um, yeah, sure. How many hours of sleep do you actually need since you're young? <laughs> um, well, some studies have shown that you need about eight to nine. Okay. Because if you have a little more than that, you get a little tired. If you have a little less, then you get, you're also tired. So it has to be in between those. Yeah. Well, I'm not that much older than you. Uh, I had board meetings up until 10 o'clock and, uh, and then I got up today at 5, I went kickboxing, and then I was doing emails from 6 to 9, and now I'm here, ready to do the show. So, not to put you to shame, but, you know, when you aspire to be somebody one day, wake up! You're in San Francisco, baby! <laughs> Let's get the program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest uh, just wrote an opinions piece that was featured in the New York Times on being queer in the Caribbean. She's a trans woman. She's a writer. And uh, I think she's extremely inspirational. And she probably is today's women, woman crush Wednesday here on the program. Let's welcome Gabrielle Bellot. Bellot. I like I love it. I want to say below, but it's Bellot. Gabrielle, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, we're excited to have you. I was reading through an essay that you penned for Prairie Schooner, but also your opinions piece on being queer in the Caribbean. You know, oftentimes when people hear about the Caribbean and LGBTQI lives, um, it's not always the best news. And in fact, you know, some of the news that have come out of the Caribbean has been really, really bad and, and violent. Let's talk about your opinions piece that was featured in the New York Times. And would you start out by, you know, mentioning uh, an, an award for Mr. James in which we feel is historical, it's, it's progressive, but people people may not really know what life is like uh, in being queer in the Caribbean, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel that there are a lot of um, misconceptions about what it's like to actually be a member of any sort of letter on LGBTQIA, right, within the Caribbean. Because 
So part of it is a your experience does differ to some degree depending on which um, island or, or nation you're from. But I mean, everywhere is not completely the same. And there are patches in the Caribbean, for instance, in which you can be queer and have a much higher chance of being um, accepted or of not experiencing as much discrimination. But then there are many other parts in which if you're openly, um, especially if you're an openly gay male in particular, or a trans woman who doesn't pass perfectly, then you might be in serious danger if the wrong person, you know, catches sight of you, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a very situational thing, right? Like, it's not as if, you know, everybody is out to get you just like that. Mm-hmm. But it's the, it's the kind of thing in which you often feel like you have to hide. You have to either try to live your life entirely in secret, or, in my case, you feel safer if you leave to go somewhere else that you feel you can openly be yourself a little bit more easily. But there isn't just, like, one standard narrative. Um, and that was something I was trying to convey in my op-ed, that there is an epidemic of people feeling that they have to either like live in secret or find a community that accepts them, or in extreme cases, leave. But there are people who somehow find a way to, um, you know, live, live their lives in like a specific community, the community that accepts them. Right, right. So it's a complicated issue, but generally not the best of pictures. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to paint that. You did that so well in your uh, opinions piece. And I mentioned Mr. James, and um, I'm referring to Marlon James's novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, in which last month he won the Man Booker Prize. Well, Marlon James had come out as gay in a piece for the Times Magazine, and, and a quote that you actually quoted in your opinions piece from uh, Mr. James was whether it was in a plane or a coffin, I knew I had to get out of Jamaica. Uh, you know, currently in, in a place like Jamaica, I know that, you know, a good amount of people um, uh, want sodomy laws in place, making it, in fact, a crime to be gay. Um, I, I, you know, how accurate is that? It's a little too um, accurate because, you know, like one thing I talked about in my piece is that there is this extraordinary sort of, um, um, like, like an anti-LGBTQ, um, almost like a, a festival that took place. It, it was really a rally that was trying to stop, um, the advancement of what they think is like an educational agenda to push, you know, you know, the, the so-called LGBTQ agenda. And as many as 20,000 people attended this and were essentially um, arguing against, you know, any sort of pro-LGBT, LGBTQ education. At the same time, Jamaica, like anywhere else, is a complicated place because in August, for instance, one thing I didn't have enough space to go into in my office is that in August, Jamaica actually had its first Pride Parade, which is an extraordinary event. You know, this is something that wouldn't have been possible without um, a number of brave um, activists in Jamaica who are trying to make things better for queer individuals. 
but at the same time, you know, this pride parade was something that had to be done very, very carefully. And so one of the organizers, for instance, um, Latoya Nugent, she wrote that they had to be very, very careful about where they did it, who knew about it, um, who was going to be there, you know, like, because visibility can be dangerous, and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's a sort of seesaw. There are a huge number of people who are very publicly against um, anything that they see as equated with homosexuality. And they often sweep trans issues under that same rug. Mm-hmm. But there are some people who are working actively to change that. It's an uphill battle. And, you know, it's, a, it's like rolling the boulder up a hill. But there, is, there are some signs that change might be coming. It's, it's just something that will take a long time, I think. Right. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with writer Gabrielle Billot, and uh, she has an opinions piece that was featured in the New York Times. So if you uh, search for it, it, it was published November 1st, 2015, titled On Being Queer in the Caribbean. Um, Gabrielle, what do, you, where, what do you think, you know, why the hatred, the sentiments behind, uh, and I say hatred, or maybe misunderstandings from, um, you know, those who live in the Caribbean? I mean, in, if in looking at, um, the islands historically, uh, you know, you talk a little bit about colonization. Um, it, what do you think? Where do you think that 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 stems from? That comes from in being, you know, not supportive or inclusive of LGBTQ. Well, I mean, again, it's a combination of things, right? Well, one part of it does stem directly from um, British colonialism, in particular. Um, and that's an interesting part of it because so much of the Caribbean was colonized at different times by different um, European powers. So even some of the islands that were ultimately colonized by France, for instance, have some British um, holdovers and vice versa. Um, and specifically, a lot of British colonies, um, virtually all of them actually, had what was known as the anti-sodomy laws, which basically made sex between males illegal. And this was sort of justified on um, the grounds of, like, you know, know, so-called common decency, but it was also biblical. And a lot of the um, really anti-queer language that you see today comes directly from you know, evangelists and churches and people who are spouting um, rhetoric that claims that being queer is somehow against uh, Christianity. Um, And that brings into play the other picture, which is um, evangelism in general. Mm -hmm. So in the early 20th century, when um, radios, were become when radio generally was becoming popular and evangelism on the radio was also becoming more of a thing. Some of that was exported to um, some islands in the Caribbean, including my own, um, Dominica. And this sort of set the stage for the thing, the kind of thing that you hear today. Like when you can turn on the radio and there are these preachers just like shouting out anti-gay rhetoric, left and right. 
And that sort of become the norm, and some of that can be traced back to um, the early 20th century. But a lot of it, honestly, is just like extreme, near-fundamentalist um, Christianity, um, which is not to say that it's anything against um, Christians. It's just that we have a really high proportion of people who they 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 connect being queer in any way to being against um, Christianity. Usually, it's specifically some form of Catholicism because Catholicism is um, usually the most popular religion in a lot of the islands. But I mean, it, it does vary. But I think religion is one of the biggest factors. Um, and that's the thing that you hear repeated when you ask people the most. But there, there are two other big factors. And one of them is very strange. Um, I heard a number of times growing up that people would say that homosexuality, and again, specifically male homosexuality, was un-African, meaning that it was something that was imported in these people's minds by European colonists. And with that, of course, comes a sort of racialization, too. You know, that sort of sense that to be African or to be a descendant of um, somebody who was taken over to the colonies during the transatlantic trade was somehow to be, um, you know, first off, non-queer, non-white, and, and also non-European. And those things were, were sort of put together, meaning that if you were queer, you were just doing a sort of white European thing that never existed in Africa. And that, of course, is not true, because we have ample evidence that, um, you know, obviously queer people have existed everywhere, including in many countries in Africa, right. only for colonialism. But this is a very popular um, meme, sort of, that people repeat. And um, I actually heard this repeated. Um, there's a really extraordinary YouTube video that you can look up in which um, a, a Jamaican Rasta is talking about Barack Obama supporting same-sex marriage a few years ago, when his opinion famously uh, shifted. And he basically says that Obama betrayed black people, that he, he's not being, quote-unquote, black. Ah. And that, that, that's the same sort of meme. So if, if it isn't religious, then it becomes a sort of racial, slash, um, some sort of strange panafricanist um, issue. So I think those three things are the biggest factors. Um, you know, like evangelism, a sort of connection to a false notion of what Africa and Africanists um, mean. And then also this broader sort of racial thing. Um, mm-hmm. So all those are wrong, of course, but they're quite persistent as um, um, concepts. And in uh, parallel to many other countries who also were you know, where it's not safe for LGBTQ. Gabrielle, we have to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I'd love to have a deeper discussion about transgender life and have a, a, you know, focus on that and then also conclude our conversation with the progress that you talked about earlier. So stay with us. Sure. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away.
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on uh, this Wednesday, November 18th. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, on the phone with us. And our guest today is Gabrielle Bellot. And we're talking about her opinions piece that was featured in the New York Times on being queer in the Caribbean. So, Gabrielle, right before the break, I mentioned that, uh, you know, we wanted to chat uh, more in depth about transgender life in the Caribbean. Do you think that, uh, you know, lesbians, gays, bisexuals are treated differently than transgender? I I, I guess I would say it depends on who is being talked about. Like, I guess, like, in terms of who um, is, um, in other words, I guess it depends on who the trans person is. So if you're a trans woman, for instance, who can, you know, quote-unquote, pass as a cis woman perfectly, then in terms of, like, like a social stigma, it might be lesser until somebody finds out, if they do. At the same time, even if you do have the ability to, um, you know, quote-unquote, pass very well, there's so many problems with our... Um, legal systems across most of the Caribbean as far as like being able to do things like change genders or, or change to a quote unquote female name that it's extremely difficult to live as a trans person and you know get a job like under your correct name and gender or things like that and these are issues that don't usually affect um, LGB people um, in the same way. So, for instance, one of my problems with that, although I'm a dual citizen, um, I have both Dominican and an American citizenship, I can't change my Dominican ID at this point to um, reflect my correct gender. I can't necessarily change my name either. Name changes are possible but a, a judge could tell you no, you know, if, if they think that you're doing something, quote-unquote, deviant, 
by you know to taking a female name um, if you were assigned male at birth. And similar things are sometimes reported by female to male um, trans persons, you know, like as far as like trouble getting a job or being misgendered. Um, but a lot of the the, the uh, social problems are, are quite similar because, again, there's a wide perception that being trans, um, particularly being a trans woman, is just a different form of being a um, gay male. This is a persistent, persistent um, concept. And, um, like, the few times that trans issues appear in the mass media, for instance, like in different islands, like, like Trinidad or, or Jamaica or Dominica, people online on social media, for instance, repeatedly will misgender people. They don't know much about trans issues in general. And that's not necessarily different from um, too many other parts of the world, but I, I think it's a bigger problem in a lot of the Caribbean that trans people are just sort of like um, seen as an extension of, um, you know, being LGB. So a lot of the problems we face are quite similar, but I think it's slightly worse for trans people because of the additional legal problems that we might face as far as like changing our identification. And this is specifically for binary trans people like myself, but non-binary um, individuals might face similar problems too, especially if they are, are like dressing in a way that, that crosses gender norms or that is gender non-conforming. Mm -hmm. Because of them, they will probably be seen, again, as either gay or a lesbian or bisexual, and that just leads to a potential problem. Mm -hmm. Again, that doesn't mean that somebody who is trans or any other, um, you know, non-heteronormative or non-cis um, orientation or identity will immediately be attacked or something. Um, it just means that you have to be careful that things might not go well if you come out to the wrong people, and especially if you're in a crowd situation, like what happened to the person I mentioned in my article about Dwayne Jones, um, especially if you're in like a crowd and people find out that you're trans or anything else, that's when the real danger usually begins. Um, and the other part of this too, uh, you know, like there's a kind of small island mentality that a lot of us have to deal with, whereby everybody sort of sort of knows that you live here or everybody can figure out that you're um, related to this person or your auntie is this person or something like that. Mm -hmm. In other words, people can find you if they want to. And well, I'm always amazed by how... Well, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I wanted to just kind of, you know, say something to that. I mean, there's a quote that you... Um, actually, a quote from you. I'm going to quote you. Uh, in which you say... <laughs> The global imagination must contain all dreams and nightmares, all bodies, all mediums for art, all selves. Um, 
I really love that quote. I think it, you know, it just shows how much of an incredible writer you are, which by the way, at one point you didn't think you could be a writer because you're a trans woman. Uh, and, and here you are, a, a beautiful woman and a beautiful writer. Uh, but tell us about, you know, the meaning of, of how, why the global imagination must contain all dreams and nightmares. Well, I mean, all I really meant by that was that we have to be able to understand that, first of all, being trans is not something that is exceptional, nor is it something that is not exceptional. It is simply something that is a part of the reality that we live in, right? And the only way to accept the reality that we do actually, you know, see before us is to accept every single part of it. And one of the problems that I, I, I guess it's sort of connected to this that I was trying to talk about just before, is that when you live on a very small island, there's often this kind of, to me anyway, like there's this sense of simultaneous isolation from other places, but also like this almost like overwhelming proximity to everybody else. Um, meaning that you are sort of isolated by being in the place that you are. You aren't connected to anywhere else immediately, necessarily. And yet, you're also connected to so many other people who are, are close to you in terms of like where they um, live, or people who know you, or people who you're connected to. And because of this, you can easily begin to feel that you're a very small, yet yet utterly magnified individual. Like, every, everybody knows your business. And I don't think we can exist as LGBTQ people if we suffer under that kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, it prevents us from living. It prevents mm-hmm. us from being ourselves. I think you're so you're so spot on and so right. I have one last question for you, and then we we sadly have to let you go. I've I've really enjoyed this morning um, in, in having a conversation with you. You mentioned that there there is light at the uh, what we say here at least you know light at the end of the tunnel. But for you, I love that you use images of screaming to the sea, and you know you growing up. Um, in the Commonwealth of, of Dominica and, and, and living by the sea, um, you know, if we can talk about the progress that people are making in the Caribbean, such as yourself, by the way, in, in being open and shouting and writing, you know, so so well, and as Mr. James and, and you know, getting his award, that that is also progress. Um, tell us, what do you think the future of the Caribbean looks like for LGBTQI? Well, I mean, I, I do think there is progress happening, right? Mm-hmm. But what that progress actually is, I, I really wish I could give you a clear sort of um, image, but the future is undeniably murky. And that's because, in particular, since the United States legalized um, same-sex marriage, there is this immediate sort of pushback in a number of... Um, nations, um, not necessarily in terms of legislation, but just in terms of, like, you know, social discussions of whether or not 
the Caribbean would, quote-unquote, be pressured into adopting the same sort of laws, right? Mm-hmm. And this is still something that's going on. Now, many things in the Caribbean sort of, like, stir up, like, they sort of, like, bubbles rising to the surface, and then they, they disappear. And this issue is sort of one of them that people got agitated about, and then nowadays people are not even talking about queer issues in general as much as I think they should, even after James was when, even after, um, you know, all this bluster that happened a few months ago. But there are activists who are actively making an effort to try to change things. Um, you can find them in virtually every island. One of the big examples um, who I really look up to is Maurice Tomlinson from Jamaica, who is a tireless, tireless um, activist working across many different islands to try to sort of like educate people, including police officers, right. um, teachers, etc., about how to deal with LGBTQI individuals. Um, but even with the activists, even with, um, you know, like the increasing influence of American media in general, which is a good thing as well in terms of, like, increasing LGBTQ acceptance, even with those things, I would be very hesitant to say that we have a good, a bright, or a clear future ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Because I honestly don't know. Um, I want to believe that the generation that I came from the, um, sort of like a, on the cusp, I, I guess, like on the cusp of the, on the cusp of being millennials, I guess. Like some Absolutely. Sort of like projecting it as a 28-year-old. Um, but I think that my generation is slightly more likely to be um, accepting, but well, I yeah. don't completely know that that's true. And it, it, it's it's a yeah it's a it's it's also a conversation I feel that a lot of people are having and millennials are so in touch you know in a digital world but uh, sometimes from a political perspective or a social perspective you know people people can be surprised uh, Gabrielle I want to thank you so much for being on the program and for for sharing your honesty uh, here at the show we send you love and we send you light and we send you support. Thank you so much for having me. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. We have a special artist, photographer, who has uh, pretty much photographed LGBTQI people from where love is illegal. Don't go away. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years and uh, over the past couple of months I just opened up my club Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. 
I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the the, uh, the ethics of Oasis. Is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know. You know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true. You know what I mean? Like I walk in there and. And I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it. I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people, and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and, you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Wednesday, November 18th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our next guest is an artist, photographer, journalist who has dedicated his career to documenting human rights and development issues around the world through long-term photographic projects. And uh, some of you may have seen um, a good example of his work on the cover of Time magazine in which a Ugandan LGBTQ activist was on the front cover. It's so amazing. I'm so honored to welcome Robin Hammond to the program. Robin, thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's talk about your uh, Where Love is Illegal uh, project. Uh, how long has this project been going on, and what was the inspiration behind it that started it all? I started the work in March last year in northern Nigeria. Um, the inspiration for it, well, you know, I'm a human rights photographer, and this was something that was uh, on my radar for a long time. I work mostly in Africa, and I was very aware of this rising homophobia and transphobia on the continent um, over the last decade. And for a long time, I've been wanting to do uh, something to, you know, express my, I guess, my outrage at, at what's been going on. And I was in Nigeria on assignment for National Geographic, and um, I heard about five young men who were arrested and, and were in prison and were facing the death penalty for committing, in quotes, uh, gay acts. So I went up to northern Nigeria to, to see them, to try to understand what was going on, and that was the beginning of a, of a project that took me to seven different countries around the world to tell the stories of 65 survivors of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, you know, a lot of has been um, reported out of countries like Nigeria, um, as well as Uganda, and in terms of the anti-LGBT movement, and and some have placed blamed on even, you know, uh, American influence. And from your experience, and actually meeting some of the activists and the people, uh, and photographing their daily lives, uh, would you say that that's accurate? 
Well, I think it's, it's, it's a complicated uh, situation. But, yes, that is, that is part of it. I mean, I think actually, um, well, we, we, can't, we can't place uh, blame on particular movements. Maybe the, uh, the U.S. evangelical movement has had an, uh, an influence on the, on, uh, the anti-LGBT movement. Um, but also, it is just that LGBT rights are just more visible, and you get um, certain powerful people in these countries who want to appeal to their conservative constituency, who will attack a minority who within their country are voiceless. It's a very easy target for them, and it's a great way for them to be able to distract them from from other issues and uh, gain some popular support. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it, there's a, there are many groups who are trying to apply for asylum or trying to flee the countries where uh, it may be illegal to be, a, you know, gay, lesbian, bi, or transgender, or queer, for, for that matter. Um, it, you're putting these photos out for, you know, worldwide consumption. I mean, it, it has been widely praised and accepted, and it's a good thing. Did you ever feel that uh, people were reluctant to want to be photographed in your campaign? Yeah, sometimes um, they were, and, and there were, were, you know, I asked many more people than uh, than than uh, accepted. And it was very, very important to me that they understood where their photos might appear and, and the potential consequences of that happening. Um, and uh, you know, they, I, it was the really, you know, underlying all this project is is, is that I really wanted to uh, give them an opportunity to. Um, have control about over how they were seen and how they were heard. So this is very much a collaboration, and I, I wouldn't want people to think that this is me going and you know pressuring people to have their have their, their oh, photo yeah. or, or story told. That they um, uh, and and anyone who had any reservations, you know, we said look, don't do it, or make sure we can't. You know, you can hide your identity. A lot of people changed their names. A lot of people covered their faces. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of them were, I mean, I was actually, I felt sometimes much more cautious than they were, you know, because they would think, look, it's only going to be a pair in the States or in, or in Europe, I'll be fine. And I had to explain to them, look, someone can take a photograph at an exhibition and, and then put it online. And then, in fact, we saw in Uganda many people being outed in, in the homophobic press when their pictures were taken off social media and then published. So it was a very cautious approach. Um, but some people were scared, yeah, definitely. I, and, you know, my questions um, in going there was just because, uh, again, it's not even just African nations that you have put faces on the map where love is illegal, but you've gone to um, Australia, even Australia, which some people can think that, uh, you know, it's progressive, but you've gone to Brazil, you've gone to Jordan, um, you've gone everywhere and, and have taken photos. And I want to stress the importance of the campaign, though, for an LGBTQI person, you know, exposure and giving us a face uh, and, and having that be our truth. That is that is so important. Um, you know, what are some of your favorite responses from this particular campaign? Because I can only imagine that you have changed some people's lives. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you all those examples that you actually bring up. None of those are my photographs. So this is actually, the, I think, one of the interesting parts of this project is, is I photographed in seven countries, 65 people. But then we decided, let's not just make it about the people I met. Let's make this a platform for people to be able to share their experiences. So those photographs oh, wow. were submitted by those people themselves. Wow. So wow. Um, we, we, what we really want, we, this, the whole idea of this, right, is that there, in, in many places there are this, this overwhelming voices of intolerance. And we want to interrupt that narrative, that to be LGBT is somehow abnormal or unnatural or... Uh, immoral. So um, we wanted to create this. When I say we, it's myself and some really dedicated and wonderful volunteers. We 
wanted to create a space where people can share these stories of survival. And so we opened it up to whoever wanted to share, and, and, and people have been sharing from all around the world. And it's, it's been, and I think, you know, it's, it's been wonderful to be, be, be part of it and, 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 a, and a great privilege. But when you talk about, uh, you know, the, the impact on people, you know, many, many people said to me that, you know, they felt desperately alone. They, they grew up in environments where, you know, who they, who, they were told that who they are is wrong. And, you know, it's really a privilege to be part of a movement where there is no longer just the voice of bigotry. You know, that there is an alternative voice. And, and you know, a lot of people said, you know, I, I just didn't know that. You know, that, that, that it's, it's sad. It's one of the saddest things that I find is many people actually believe the voices of intolerance that are around them. And so hopefully they get to know that there are people like them who are going through the same, same experiences. And some of them would never want to relive it, but some of them come out stronger the other side. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Robin Hammond, uh, artist and photographer on his work, his campaign, his photo project, where love is illegal dot com and uh, or I'm sorry, you can head to where love is illegal dot com if you want to check out some of these incredible photos that we're talking about. Uh, some are Robin's work and uh, and as you just heard, um, that is so powerful to have people, you know, submit their own work and now it's just become this worldwide um connective uh project that I think <laughs> In some in some countries, it can it can be an uh, an empowering tool politically as well. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts right before we get on uh, on break on on African countries in which you know in, in in like Uganda, right? They almost passed a bill that was an anti-gay bill that would have thrown LGBTQI people in jail if not you know uh, uh, under very harsher uh, consequences. Um, you, you know, do you feel that uh, more and more photos and, and, and talking to more and more people and coming out that, that 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 could really help a country like Uganda change its perception and its views? Well, I hope so. It's, it's um, you know, I've been talking to a lot of uh, big LGBT uh, groups recently, and I think that one of the things that they say, in fact, I was talking to an activist the other day who said that there are some great people doing great work internationally, um, but none of them can name a person. None of them can actually say, this is who we are representing or, or fighting the rights for. And so what I hope that we can do is, is give a face to what sometimes seems like an, an abstract issue. And I, I really do believe that you know, politicians or policymakers or people in power, you know, they are people as well. And I think that it's much easier to move them maybe on an uh, emotional level when they can actually feel that they are real but he real people behind what they're doing. So that, that's the hope and, and the mm-hmm. goal. Mm-hmm. We have to take a quick break, but we come back, Robin. I hope you'll stay with us. I want to jump into some other incredible projects that you're working on uh, that will impact you know, social changes. So stay with us. Sure. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. For listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at Facebook.com forward slash Progressive Voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at Facebook.com forward slash Progressive Voices. 
The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marta Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Wednesday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our guest on the phone is the great, the incredible Robin Hammond, an artist, photographer, journalist, uh, whose, uh, whose artwork is, is more than just a, a picture, really, it, and it's all about change. Robin, right before the break, we, we talked a, a little bit about where love is illegal, but you have a new project out that you just launched um, earlier uh, this summer, actually, uh, Witness Change. And let's talk a little bit about that, just because I think it's perfect timing to be involved in a project like that. Well, I mean, Witness Change, I mean, so Where Love is Illegal is a project of Witness Change. Witness Change is it's a, it's a not-for-profit 501c3 where we, uh, with a group of volunteers, came together from very diverse backgrounds. And uh, we just, you know, we wanted to, you know, I'm, I'm a photographer and I've been a photojournalist for a long time covering human rights issues. And really it was born out of frustration. I started this this career because I wanted to make a difference with my work, and I was, was published in some, you know, some heavy publications with uh, some important issues, but the change that I hoped would come about from that work didn't come about. So uh, Witness Change is about witnessing, documenting, and telling stories, and change always having, you know, making sure there is an impact with that work and making sure that our work reaches the right people, people with influence and power to change the situation. I mean, with Where Love is Illegal, we are not only trying to, uh, raise awareness and, and amplify these voices of survivors of persecution so that we can provide this alternative narrative. But we're also using it to try and raise money to support grassroots organizations in Africa so that they can you know, be more effective with their work because they're doing great work, great people, but they just lack the resources. So witnessing, documenting change, making sure there's some action, some concrete measurable change that we can bring about by through storytelling. I say that it's so timely, and uh, you know, I was uh, you know so, uh, the uh, the news of Paris, right? The terrorist attacks that impacted so right, many right people. Right now, yep. Um, and um, and 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 I. Uh, how do I say this? I feel like a lot of people were impacted, rightfully so. Um, but it, but it almost like Facebook had done this thing where you know, with just a uh, profile uh, change, you know, people. Um, were able to express their their feelings, their emotions, and then some had criticized that. 
I, I actually thought that, you know, I wish that there was something a step further that we can do, a project like yours. Um, what do you think? Like, do you think that that's, uh, you know, art and, and kind of what you do? Obviously, you know that it can make a change. And do you think that it could apply to the situation with the uh, terrorist groups? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that, you know, I mean, there's, there's a commonality, right, between uh, some of this work. Uh, what, what it's all about is people, you know, uh, seeing somebody different from them and, and refusing to understand the difference. And, and, and these barriers that we that are kind of artificial, but they, you know, these barriers of distance or religion or nationality or cause or whatever it might be, um, cause us to dehumanize the other. And, you know, it's, it's, it's it much, makes it much easier to, I guess, you know, just to kill somebody who you dehumanize. So, I mean, it's, in a way, it's the point of the work that I'm trying to do is, is, is make these issues human. And that's, I mean, that's what we, I'm trying to do with, with many of my projects is, you know, to, to make it that not actually about, 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 about issues, but fundamentally about people. And I think that, you know, this, the, we, we allow these barriers to get in the way of, of connecting. And I think that, you know, uh, we're all people. And, you know, whether you're, you're Syrian or, or French or American, we all have, you know, there's much more that, that connects us than separates us. But we often look at the at those things that separate us, um, especially when we want to do harm to each other. What about the exposure of, of reality and fact? You know, sometimes people think that art can be so abstract that you're removed from reality. But I have to actually feel like a project like yours can speak to truth. When a situation like this happens, so many opinions flow. And then in the media, um, so many of those opinions, you know, if, if false, can in fact become truth. Um, you can't hide from photos. You can't hide from videos. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about, you know, using a project like yours to speak truth? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I, I keep talking about, um, you know, with my, with my colleagues and the volunteers that are working on this, that we, what we really want to be able to do is what we call authentic storytelling. And that's, that's storytelling where, where, we, where it's, where it's, it's um, subject-driven. So the people, so with Where Love is Illegal, I'll take that as, as an example. Uh, the photographs I made were made in collaboration with the, with the people um, I, was, I was photographing. They had a lot of input into how they were seen and their pose and how they expressed themselves. But also they wrote their own stories. So um, in a way, I just become an intermediary. And I, I, I hope that, that people can... And, and people have said this a lot on, on our social media. We've had a, had a great following now. But people actually really appreciate... They feel much more connected to the individual when, when we, are, you know, we re- remove some of, those, some of those barriers. So I think there is definitely a role for that to play. Uh, last question for you, and um, you know, I, I love the title uh, "Witness Change," um, but you also doing your work, your witness to some of the saddest parts of human life, such as oppression, such as you know the uh, uh, disparities that humans face around the the world. Really, it's not even you're focusing on one region. Uh, does that ever weigh you down and uh, keep you from doing what you do? Um. There, there are times when I mean, of course, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm human, so it's you know, it's it's hard not to be affected by it. And in fact, I don't think I would be doing my job well if I was completely numb. It's really important that, you know, I can I can have empathy with these people. Otherwise, I would not be able to tell their stories. Um, but I think that the fact that in the in the witnessing, we also have the change. And I think that I think when uh, when I feel like we are working together to actually try to make a difference. That um, it, it, it feels less hopeless um, than, and, and you know, it's, it's one of the reasons for me personally why I'm 
why I want to be doing this kind of work, the witnessing and the changing, is that it's really important for me. I, I, I think that with witnessing comes responsibility, and uh, and I definitely feel that responsibility to the people whose stories I'm telling, and I really hope that you know that change can come about through this work for them. Robin, thank you so much for doing what you do, and uh, you're just such an inspiration for not just participating in the arts, but in actually making change. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much as well. Well, what a great, great, great show, and, and kind of, you know, um, touching in on, on Wednesday here and continuing our conversation about making sure that our conversations that we have on this show are authentic to the work that we do. I think that, you know, there's something extremely powerful about having dialogue um, with, 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 with people who are making a difference versus having dialogue with people who are just going to throw opinions out there. Um, it does make a difference when people are actually taking actions instead of just like talking about the actions. So it's like doing the walk and not just talk the talk. Yeah. So I'll ask you, Fong, did you change your profile picture to show support for France? I didn't do two other reasons. Um, it's kind of the same thing, although it's different, um, different, you know, stories and stuff. But then remember how when there was like Prop 8 and stuff or like to support gay marriage and people wanted to, to do that. I just didn't think that's that's a that's the only way or one of those ways to show support. Um, I just think that it's not enough to just change my profile. Yeah, it's super passive. You know what? Um, again, like I, I, I do not control your social media pages. You do what you want to do. But the the people, there were some people where I really truly felt like just by changing their profile page, it gave them license or a reason to to speak openly with some opinions that could be considered dangerous to the change that we do need to make. All of a sudden you had a score of military experts who were people who probably had never even seen a gun. Um, people who all of a sudden are foreign relations experts who, um, you know, the most foreign person in their life might be their pet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then so it just kind of then and I think that that's how it derails the true conversation we should be having. It derails mm -hmm. into this conversation of like immigration. All of a sudden you got Texas saying, you know, we need to, to, to protect our borders. We will not allow Syrian refugees to enter the state. Um, then you have people who are now thinking that all Muslims are bad people. And it, uh, it, it just becomes uh, just so ugly. When yeah. The reality is, the truth is, uh, just as Robin had mentioned and just like, you know, examples of which Gabrielle had painted, um, the fear that we have as human beings, the fear literally comes from a place of the unknown when we're, uh, uh, we don't know something or we won't, uh, we refuse to accept differences of other people, then it becomes, it, 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 it you know, we end up in this very ugly, unknown place. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching an Australian news last night, um, a zip it on, on YouTube, and they were talking about maybe this is a strategy that, you know, ISIS is trying to put out. Um, by, you know, making, you know, causing all these attacks and, you know, um, and brutalizing a lot of things and, you know, causing violence, maybe a way to make us, you know, hate each other or inf um, infuse hate or somehow more violence. Yeah, um, I think that's absolutely part of it. And I also think that by infusing the hate and getting us to mobilize to have these discussions at length online and, you know, create media frenzy, while <laughs> that's happening, they're recruiting. 
Mm. And I feel that that's how they get, you know, their um, support uh, even more stronger. When you think about who would join these radicals, these crazies, these fanatics, I mean, um, you would have to be either A, mentally ill, uh, B, you would have to be uh, so desperate and vulnerable for, you know, um, to, to feel needed. Uh, mm. See that, you know, see you're so angry and you hate something so bad that the, that inflicting violence on yourself and on, you know, someone else um, is necessary. And then, of course, the obvious, which is the the true the the very real belief of the doctrines in place from the very extreme place of um, the Islamic you know views and and foundation. Um, and when you think about some of these actions and you think that it is a belief, it is a religion that you are supposed to carry out these acts of violence for God, of course, you know it is very, very, very dangerous. Um, you take the issue or the uh, the 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 attack on Charlie Hebdo, the satirical magazine. Uh, Twelve people were killed, and that was you know in France. And when um, the conversation went from a tragedy to well, the satirical magazine was making fun of Muslims. You know, you then you what what does that do? That incites hatred. And, uh, and 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 anger mm-hmm. on Muslims, especially extreme, you know, uh, people of Islamic faith, and that's when they went into recruit mode. In my opinion, mm-hmm. I think you're right. That's part of the strategy. Is the long way of me saying that. Um, <laughs> but you know, th- I don't want to have that kind of conversation, in which I think a lot of talk show hosts and politicians are having on the air anyway. I'm not here to criticize. Um, I don't want to do that. I'm just kind of now just speaking my opinion. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to the interviews, what we're trying to do is just paint that diverse picture and making sure that every day you hear from someone different, so that you learn something from it. And hopefully that conditions us for the future to be able to accept uh, ourselves, whether we have similarities or differences. And that to hear from like progressive Muslims and to hear from diverse people and people of color and people from different places um, so that it also helps us to be more, uh, you know, yeah, inclusive and diverse. So we understand other people's plight. So thank you for joining us here today. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time with a brand new show, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Um, you, for everything else, you can head to the Michelle Meow Show, or sorry, to michellemeow.com. <laughs> Enjoy your Wednesday. We'll see you tomorrow.